0: Ink Inkstuds on CITR 101.9 FM. Uh, My guests this week are Matt Seneca, Tim Hodler, and I'm sorry I didn't ask in advance, Joe McAuliffe? Is that how you pronounce it? All right. Um, All these gentlemen um, are involved actively online in different capacities. Uh, Tim being one of the online editors of the Comics Journal, um, which was relaunched. This year was the relaunch, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was in March.
0: March, and uh, Joe's been online for quite some time, doing some great reviews and studies of comics, and as well writes for the Comics Journal and um, the. Is this is uh, Jogs' blog still running, or is that done? It's now that you're uh, in the v-
2: very occasionally things appear on it, like if I'm if I want to add like. Uh commentary to something I've done elsewhere. I'll, I'll write a little on that, but mo- most of my output right now is the column on the Comics Journal where I write I natter on about whatever happened the prior week, and then I make a, a lot of unfounded recommendations of things I've not read. It's, it's terrific fun.
0: <laughs> Which should make for great fodder for today. And Matt, you write on about 50 different blogs, I think, am I right? Um...
3: It's about that, more or less.
0: <laughs> as well as your webcomic affected. Yes. Yes. Um, so you can be found on the Comics Journal, Robot 6, Comics Alliance, and um, what else am I forgetting? Um, those would... are
3: my regular spots, other other random places. I don't turn down work, so somebody gets in touch.
0: <laughs> Hear that, ladies? He's for sale.
3: That's right. <laughs>
0: Um so to sum down why I have these three guys is every year in the Inc. studs I try and do a year end with the critics. Uh Tim was on uh, a couple of years ago with Sean T Collins and I feel really bad cuz I can't remember who the third person was. But was it Chris Montner? I that that rings a bell to
1: me. I can't remember either, but I think that's right.
0: Okay. We'll go with that. And if I it apologize. Wasn't, it should
1: have been Chris is great.
0: Yeah. Uh I think it may have been um And so what we do is kind of uh, come up with a list of the years previous comics, the best of. And I don't want... Actually, best of is a bad term. Um, It's kind of books we want to discuss, and there's one book on this list that obviously is not on one of our participants' uh, best of list, Um, and that's kind of the thing, is to really discuss these books and see what we like, what we didn't like, why we liked it, and maybe we'll have issues with each other's opinions, um, or maybe not. So. We'll go yeah. from there. Are you guys ready?
2: I'm very ready.
0: Alright. Um, yeah, wh- well, I'll start out with maybe uh, a big book, one of my favorite books of the year, um, and my favorite book for many years as was being serialized, is Big Questions by Anders Nilsson. Um, I liked it so much I went and got the fancy hardcover which had the first two issues and all the covers and whatnot. Curious to hear what you boys thought. Well, what, what, what maybe you could
1: start by saying what what why is it one of your favorite books ever?
0: Oh, I never want to answer questions. Um, well, one of the really exciting things about what Honors is doing with Big Questions is it's this really oblique story of this guy in a house with his grandma, and the house gets uh, totaled by a plane, and the guy is. I think the character's name is The Idiot Boy, to give you a rough idea of what he's like, and exists in this world of these different characters, um, like birds that talk to each other, and there's a snake that talks on the birds, and they all take on different analogous properties to various philosophical ideas and different literary traditions. And he, the way he's mixing in these different ideas and traditions really excites me as far as like taking these different things and really pu- putting it together and stripping it down in a way too um, and how they all bounce off each other so mm-hmm. that, that's why it excited me
1: well um i don't know if, does anyone else want to say anything first or
0: no
4: go ahead
1: um well i i find it so, so i have mixed feelings about the book i think in some ways um some parts of it i thought were very powerful and interesting um i think it's it's a really unusual book in the sense that, it, it, just for the obvious reasons that it's you know fifteen years worth of work put together um, from the very beginning of his career when he didn't, by his own uh, admission, know what he was doing in terms of being doing making comics to now when he's you know more accomplished, um, and I think uh, it has uh, flaws and good things uh, attached to it because of that. Um, I think the the beginning of the book for me was kind of rough sledding. Um it gets better as it goes. And I think um but there but like I said there are moments that I really uh I really liked a lot. I thought there's uh there's a fight scene near the end with uh some birds and some crows. Uh I think it's kind of amazing just the um the physical uh acrobatics involved. But when you get there's a lot of philosophical stuff that I don't think I don't think is a. Uh, I think his reach
3: exceeds his grasp, I guess, is what I would say. Uh,
1: at least, I, was, I don't know, what, what other people think.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. I think, like, I hadn't read the early issues of Big Questions, so I was, I was excited to read the whole big thing as a single novel. Um, but then when I read it, and I, I really liked the later issues, especially that fighting issue toward the end. Um, but then when you read the whole thing, I don't necessarily think it adds up to more than the sum of its parts as a story. Mm -hmm. I think it's really cool to see the guy's entire career as an artist, or as a cartoonist at least, in one book, and I think that the experience of seeing all that artistic development is, like, worth reading it all as one big thing, but story-wise, I I probably enjoyed the single issues better where he's less where it's less wide-ranging and he can zero in a little bit more on a single topic.
4: Yeah, I I get...
2: Oh, go oh, ahead. So, no, I I think it's uh, interesting because it it's kind of the it's kind of the story of alternative quote unquote comics' uh, development over the last however so many years. Because those those early issues of Big Questions, I had to have someone someone offered to let me borrow the early issues, which they had dutifully accumulated over the years. They just like mailed them to me and made me promise to send them back. And and that kind of that kind of struggle to obtain these really small run things and to get more and more pieces of it was uh was part of the identity of the work for me because I it consumed it primarily in a serialized form and you know I, I don't have the early ones anymore I, I sent them back eventually after way too long but um, it's I think it has an interesting characteristic then as a book because it's almost like because like Tim said he starts out really really rough but it, it it's almost like almost like a camera a movie camera like pulling back to to reveal more and more of the environment as he is he basically gets more and more accomplished in drawing this sort of semi-realistic uh environment that the story takes place in um I think really a lot of it strikes me as as an accumulation of elements then throughout his career like it, it, the monologues of the upcoming uh, plague, and that uh, zone of his work is also fairly, not really in the same way, but um, heavy on philosophical musing, I guess. I I tend to find his work a little more striking in things like uh, The End, his Ignatz book, which is probably my favorite thing of his and part of that is how this this emotional current kind of shoots through this really restless and vivid uh, shifting between styles and there's more of a more of a growth like an evolution to uh big questions um, that you know follows the follows the progress of his life and I think I like uh, seeing him more jagged but then I'm still really chewing over the Content of the work, I guess. It, it's it's really hard for me to be honest to grasp it all. I, I don't think I'm very articulate about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anyone else have any comments they want to make? Hearing what other people have to say, or
1: well, I, one I thing that oh, interesting to me is I to wonder about is whether it would be better if he had edited it once it's collected into one book and really like rigorously like cut parts of it out and just like made it all, you know, right now there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really come to fruition. There's seeds planted that don't, um, you know, that don't lead anywhere. Um, there's a lot of there's some meandering parts. And so part of me thinks it would, be, it would have been great when it's collected just to, to really get it down, to be perfectionist about it and just ruthlessly cut things. And another part thinks then you lose what's most interesting about the book which is not the actual story, but, um, you know, the, the meta story of his development.
2: I don't, I don't know if I'd call it uh, important, but it, it's what was most immediately, you know, impactful for me, this kind of, uh, uh, I'm trying to, trying to think of the word I want here, but this, like, um, this kind of compressed space where a lot of time, Occurs, you know, in a really quick shot over 600 pages. I think that has a really valuable immediate effect, and it's something that uh, comics as a narrative art form can do if you have mm-hmm. X number of years to spend on it.
0: Right. That's a good point, too. I think one of the interesting things about that to me is it is kind of sprawling and it does go in some Vienna directions, and, it, and that kind of adds to my enjoyment. Of it, because it is in this weird space that doesn't exist. Like it's a kind of purgatory, almost.
2: Yeah, it might uh it might be more distracting if it didn't occur on such a such an allegorical plane, because this kind of environment you can, you know, accept as you know mutating and detailing as time passes.
3: Yeah, I really like that about it. Actually, I was gonna mention um, visually, the way he'll. Not use panel borders a ton, and it's like, and there's all this white space, especially in his backgrounds, and um and there's just nothing there. It really, especially toward the end, it calls to your imagination in a way that um that the content doesn't always. But just seeing these, especially toward the end as his his drafting gets better and better, seeing these figures just moving around in this white space is very evocative to
0: me. And and it's also the striking balance between the, the openness of the white space and then the side story of Elgernon and the snake in the underground cave, which is very black and very dark.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it, yeah, it, totally. it kind of plays with that allegory again of a different type of purgatory, a different existence.
1: I, I also think it's the only funny animal comic on our list, um, an old comic book tradition that's kind of dead now.
0: <laughs> yeah, sadly, unfortunately, there isn't a uh, a thickness that's based on uh, furry comics. But I'm sure, if Ryan sends, thick-
3: like... Lisa Hanewalt did a, a animal thickness.
0: Oh, yeah. there we go.
3: And uh, <laughs> and, and, Jesse and it was very and... funny too. <laughs> Why yeah, do That
0: was amazing. <laughs> do you guys want to jump into the thickness, into the thick of the thickness? Yeah, boy. Yeah. Sure. sure. Um. Sammy Harcum on Twitter uh, bluntly said that Ryan Sands is the best publisher of the year even though he just calls himself a printer. And uh, I, I'm going to echo the uh, really what he's done with the thickness. Um, there's two issues of it out so far. Um, pu- printed on a wristograph in Ryan Sands. Um, I guess he has like a studio somewhere. And it's this crazy porn anthology the first one featuring um, current uh, alternative comics um, hotshot Johnny Negron, uh, other folks like Katie Skelly, and who else we got in it?
2: I believe it not it? It's also edited by uh, Michael DeForge, isn't it?
0: Yeah, Michael DeForge and Ryan Sands edit it together, and yeah. Michael DeForge has an amazing story in the uh, second thickness, as well as um, Brandon Graham, who's. Uh, story in this just blew me away um I was really surprised just how far he'd taken his work because we hadn't really seen anything because he's been working on multiple warheads so long so it was very pretty and other great folks like Lisa Hanwalt, Mickey Zakili and Angie Wang but I don't like the True Chabo stuff I think it distracts oh you don't like True Chubbo? no I'm sorry yeah. <laughs> um So, Thickness. Tim, you didn't get a chance to get it, unfortunately, Um, but I'm sure you will enjoy it when you get it.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's in the mail. It should be here any day. I'll probably get it tomorrow. Um, (laughs) My only comment before, um, since I haven't read it, um, I can't really comment on the work itself, but the one thing I do think is kind of interesting about it without having read it is that um, just to think about how in comics, unlike um, maybe in other art forms, the... um, most of the guys uh, and women who are participating in this are uh, have pretty strong reputations as being, or developing reputations as being, you know, on the uh, higher end of, like, great, good artists.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: they're willing to do porn- pornographic material in a way that yeah, I think you'll be hard-pressed maybe to find, like, a, a prose porn anthology getting the, the new young writers of the same caliber um, or same reputation or, or film or, or whatever. Um, I think it's
2: well, that's interesting because, um, and I think that's uh, that's a unique quality about thickness because Ryan Sands, I, I first ran into him, he was running this uh, years ago, this manga blog, uh, Same Hat, mm-hmm. which had all of these, um, you know, really great, uh, weird uh, alternative, generally still in Japanese manga images on it. And it's interesting because I can sense that influence all over thicklit thickness not just because Michael DeForge and Johnny Negron have, I think very strong manga influences to their visual styles, but because there is a very large area of pornographic comics material in japan um and a lot of very popular eventual populist or you know art popular artists have come from pornography or work in pornography still the the blade of the immortal guy uh, has busted out some uh x-rated material every so often and so i see that kind of uh... Aura sort of floating around thickness, which um, also pretty dutifully replicates this this kind of dichotomy in manga. I think I first heard this in um, uh, comics underground Japan, the old Awesome Blast Books anthology, where there's this idea of porn that is quote useful, and I think you can understand what useful means, and porn that is not useful, but sex is still a a central characteristic of the story that is used for means other than arousal, and I think uh, those tendencies are both active in thickness and used to various uh, ends by the different artists. Another very interesting thing about thickness is that it's very... Almost equal in terms of uh, the sex of the people involved. There's slightly more women involved than men, actually. And I found uh, it kind of interesting that Johnny Negron, to a large extent, and Brandon Graham, to a lesser extent, kind of adapt, uh, will adopt these kind of almost mainstreamy, pornographic, you know, multiple uh, position kind of depictive styles, whereas uh, basically all of the female contributors take on um, a not particularly positive view of heterosexual sex, at least. <laughs> um, no, it's true. It's it's absolutely true. Um, and I think that's, I don't think that's intentional. I think it's interesting. However, um, I really actually was struck by uh, Mickey Z's uh, Slime Worm piece, which is just this this just kind of nightmare of coercion and and dashed uh, expectations which is followed right up by Lisa Hannewalt's animal characters enacting this this paternalistic like uh, consumption parable of male desire and uh, so thickness has a
0: lot of of those different impulses going on um, it's interesting to when you look at um, porn comics in North America and um, the closest, uh, kind of similar type thing I can think of was like the dirty stories that Fenographics put out. Yeah, or back... the true the true porn ones too. And the, yeah, the true porns. And w- what is it the thickness is doing that those failed at? Because I really feel like there's something that Ryan got that those others didn't. Where it's like, I don't know if those kind of treated like a joke, and Ryan didn't treat it like a joke. I don't know do you guys I think it's
3: that I think it's how much imagination gets put into to this stuff um, like the true porn comics were you know almost like diary journal entries and this stuff is all utterly fantastic I mean none of it is the one thing you don't see is the kind of porn that um, that you can make with a video camera you know, it's all got some fantastic setting or non-human characters or just crazy layout tricks or um, or tricks with, in the Johnny Negron one, those weird masks the characters are wearing and things like that, that you can kind of only do with a pen and paper. Um, and I think, Tim, that gets at what you were saying about how, um, about how you wouldn't necessarily see hot young filmmakers or hot young prose writers attempting to make pornographic work um, because there's a lot of potential that comics can, I think, get at. Like, potentials for the comic book form that porn can get at um, that just aren't there in, say, prose or even film. Mm -hmm. Just the, the amount of things that these guys and girls... Draw um are are just astounding and kind of unprecedented i mean outside of maybe japan like these type of sex comics with mm-hmm. just such vivid imagined um just all this so much craziness it <laughs> just hasn't really been seen before i don't think
2: it hasn't been seen in uh in north america to quite this uh uh flexible extent i know um I mean, Japan's sex comics can get a lot more extreme. Uh, I, I'm interested in that thickness hasn't really gotten into any of the the hardline uh, iro guro turn your stomach, dash your eyes out stuff that there's quite a lot of uh, in the Japanese uh, porn manga scene. Um, but yeah, I, I I generally agree that this is it's. It, I I guess it's the the visual. Uh, diversity and the kind of interest in taking this um, uh, the interest in taking this to aesthetic kind of you know interesting places in terms of pacing I guess
0: I, I think it's really interesting one of the things um, is also there's no expectation of okay I'm doing a porn comic and it's just gonna be straight just you know fluids and messiness um, when you look at something like, Michael DeForge's story, which really highlights what a strong creator he is, and just how you can really do a story like this and really take it in different directions.
2: Sure, and and DeForge's uh, piece, it's it it's funny because the the whole gender swap. There's even a term for that in Japan that I'm completely blanking on, but that's uh that's a nice common trope that he uses in, in an interesting way. I take it as kind of a a metaphor for kind of denial of uh, homosexual tendencies. It's also, and of course, one difference I suppose of both prose and comics is that it doesn't have the the uh, schematic kind of expectations of a uh, cinematographic porn or any sort of image of you know dudes going down on each other would immediately relegate it to the bisexual arena. It couldn't be mainstream in that way. But uh, you know, other. Mediums could uh, get into that. It's interesting that this is the only uh, male male uh, material in thickness thus far. Although I know at least one more issue is planned.
1: I I, I didn't want to quickly point out that um, I'm sure everyone knows this, but uh, just that there is a North American tradition for art art porn comics too. Well, of uh, course, the Tijuana Bibles were like um, the
2: first comics, pretty much the first folded over comic books.
1: Or, or even more ambitious ones like uh, S. Clay Wilson, Robert Crumb, mm-hmm. uh, Gilbert Hernandez. Um, they've all done this, too. Uh, and w- without having read the books, to answer your question um, probably incorrectly, Robin, my, my impression of the books, without, just from seeing them at conventions, is that they're more um, edited in a way, uh, more consistently and more heavily. Um, the editor has a stronger presence in the books, or the editors do, where um, you know it's more thematically... Um, it seems from the outside at least to be more thematically uh, in tune with the, the all the contributors together.
0: Would you guys concur? Yeah I probably so, agree
3: with that. I think one other thing I, I wanted to say that to, to sort of clarify I guess what I was talking about before after thinking about it for a second longer, I think what what this book really has that um, maybe previous porn comics North American porn comics haven't is that I think most of the sense of the erotic, the eroticism in these stories isn't necessarily the product of something that's, you know, hot or titillating so much as it is from like the way that these stories completely disconnect you from reality. And you're, these stories all take place somewhere very distinctively other from the sort of workaday boring old world they're all, it's, it's always it's escapist comics really um, and really accomplished escapist
4: comics
2: yes, yes, even Angie uh, even Wang's thing kind of you know uh, suggests like uh, sexual ecstasy is like a kind of a cosmic zone that surrounds you, there's all these like little little panels of really minute uh, activities and like Uh, tactile connections that just dissolve into the end in this uh, black starry space and um, yeah I'm glad that was at the front of uh, one of the issues because it's a nice uh, statement I think.
0: One of the reasons I I wanted to discuss this book uh, other than um, one of you choosing it is I'm really I love the fact that these are vital cartoonists and they're not big graphic novels. In a year of big books like Big Questions, Habibi, Paying for It, um, here we have some of the most exciting comics being eight pages long. Sure, it's also a, it's
2: also a zone of um, kind of activity for uh, international influence. I think because you know that the actual manga scene in the United States is sort of contracting a bit in the way you can argue that the superhero scene is contracting into more more sure things, more definite uh, focus on this and this genre, this and this kind of definite money-making comic, but um, this thickness, and really the chameleon books that uh, Johnny Negron himself co-edits, um, they all, they all kind of have this uh, international outlook radiating from them, I think more so than any other uh, alternative You know, art, I guess, comics that I've encountered this year, certainly in, you know, the old, good old comic book format.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: A touch of the fusion. (laughs) 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 Um, leading in from there is, uh, someone who Matt has been in constant contact, um, maybe to a degree that might not be healthy, is, uh, Blaise Larme's, uh, 2001. Um, Did,
1: bo- did both of you guys, did both, Joe and Matt, did you both pick that one? I can't remember.
3: Um, I did. I don't know if Joe did.
2: Matt did. Matt did. Okay.
0: <laughs> so, Matt, why is this one of the best books of the year?
3: Um, well, to begin with, it's not a book. Um, it's an online <laughs> webcomic. <laughs> and uh, I think that while there's been some very, very accomplished work, I um, Done in web comics recently, uh, maybe Dashaw's Dash Body World being the best example. I think Blaze has really sort of found an acme for web comics that is different from that of the book, that is a definitively different format that you couldn't translate over to a book version and have it all the same reading experience, and yet is still as subtle and considered and pleasurable to read as any book format comic for me. Um, he, the way that he capitalizes on the, uh, the scroll down the page is just phenomenal, I think. And the way he sort of renders <coughs> something close to, to animation um, with that scroll and um, almost steps into the breach between comics and animation uh, to me calls back to possibly the first great cartoonist, Winsor McKay, and the way he was Absolutely, also trying yeah. to push the boundaries of, um, of comics and, and bring it into you know the real thing that everyone says it's supposed to be, which is pictures that move. And I think uh, what Blaze has done with this sort of movable... These movable pictures that scroll across your screen, rather than staying still on the page, is just just incredible and really gets out a lot of potentials of the comic book format that actually were were not that we weren't able to get at before the internet came along.
0: Did, did yeah. he ever
1: finish that comic? Or I thought I read that he had he didn't finish it. Is that am I incorrect about that? Or
0: I don't know if it has an ending.
2: I okay. think the end. I think the ending it has now is terrific, but I don't know if it's actually the ending.
3: Yeah,
1: I didn't. I, I, for some reason, I thought I read that he was putting on a hiatus or something, but I'm probably wrong about that.
3: Yeah, he said he put it on hold, but I think he's done now. I think okay. he's not going to go back and do it anymore. He told me he threw away the original art, if that means anything.
2: <laughs> I like. Uh, I like that there's, and I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the scrolling. Uh, tendency here because it's it's interesting because there there's almost an element of of deliberate frustration built into the comic because you're scrolling up and down and until the very end the characters are almost exclusively moving like left to right which is interesting because you get I mean you can't scroll fast enough so that it actually looks like animation but and and Blaze has a really really good command of motion in his character art he's really good at doing that and it's almost like by scrolling up and down you're you're forced to keep your eyes on where like such and such a character is on the the little square that is the screen and it um it's sort of Fires the movement of it a little more than I think if you took the more seemingly logical path of using the quote, infinite canvas of web comics to move uh, left to right. I think it's... Uh I think I think it's really interesting in terms of structure really effective in how the characters navigate the terrain it, it reminded me a lot of uh, Yuichi Yokoyama's stuff actually and how a lot of it's about navigating this terrain and and kind of exploring it with the characters although Blaze isn't so big on environments or actions but he's on like human gestures like in this kind of almost abstract space that at the end of the uh, project the characters defeat because they kind of acknowledge the reader much as tokoyama interestingly does in color engineering and suddenly you see that you're almost trapped in a sort of uh, frame and they're coming towards you and because you are trapped in a frame because you're looking at them you know on a screen it's a web comic.
1: I think you could say the same thing about Prison Pit and some other comics that we haven't uh, that we didn't put
0: on our list too
1: um, Prison Pit is, was I on the of,
0: list What's that? Prison Pit was on the list
1: no and some okay. other comics that weren't on the list um that, that that those were the concerns about uh of motion and movement and um it's kind of interesting that seems to be very prevalent uh concern amongst artists right now um but uh, I wanted to agree that uh i think blaze's uh drawings are beautiful um i think um his sense of uh character uh this the the body language and and movement is is really great too and i really liked um Matt Seneca's um I can't remember where it was, whether it was on your blog or somewhere else, but what you wrote about it I really liked.
3: Um I think that was robot uh, six.
1: Okay. And um I guess the only thing I, I felt like my only problem with it, and it's not really a problem, is that I feel like it's um is that it it's just like the first step <laughs> towards something. Where I I just I didn't get too much out of it seems more like a formal exercise to me than and maybe I just didn't get it. Maybe I'm just... Um, this could be that I'm just I'm missing something where I just didn't feel um, moved by it in the end. I just felt like this is pretty. Um, and uh, But I feel like he's totally capable of doing something like that. And I'm curious. I can't wait to see what he does next.
0: I'm going to kind of echo a little bit of what Tim was saying, um, but kind of throw my own thing in there. One of the challenges I really have with his work is that I still feel like he's worried too much about the concepts and not as much of the um, the construction. Does that make sense? Like I feel like it's still this philosophy of what he is that he's doing but it's not working in the practice.
3: What do you mean by that? What um, did you think didn't work in 2001?
0: <sighs> it, I'll, I'll admit it's been a couple months since I'd read it um, but it, it just didn't it didn't grab me. It's not I'm not jumping into it and maybe it's just the ideas didn't seem fully formed for me. I don't know.
1: Well, to me, I didn't I I, I think uh, it was, to me, and I might be wrong about this and I'd love to be corrected by Matt or Joe, um but it seemed to me it seemed more about mood and atmosphere um than it was about there being a story of some kind or something to grab onto. Um uh do, do you guys disagree with that or or, or what well,
2: I, I think that the content, I guess, and I don't think "content" is even the right word, but it's the word that popped into my head. The the content is that the characters are are making these, you know, conversational references to both things we can't know and and things we don't see. There's this little, you know, suggestion of someone's decorated their space with, you know, graffiti that uh, deliberately <laughs> uh, that deliberately um, suggests, you know, Paris student riots and. Revolutionary power of uh, nineteen sixty-eight, and which which actually fits a bit into to Kramer's Ergo Eight, but we'll get to that later. Oh. Um, but All what? Right. what did... <laughs> I, I didn't get that. But anyway, um, but you know what we see is what's totally totally foregrounded is the kind of uh, you know delicacy of these characters' interactions, like you know, kind of touching each other and brushing their heads and walking around and singing and it's sort of um i mean i don't want to say it's an it's an affirmation of their humanity you know above the uh the concerns of you know what they say they're doing and what their pretense is that they're doing but i think it's i think it's beautiful and how it it foregrounds um you know uh this sort of silent interactions near silent interactions mm-hmm. empathy you know i think it's a very empathetic work i thought young lions was too honestly
4: I'm going to
0: segue us into um, Yokoyama's Color Engineering um, someone had made a comparison between the two Um, Matt you were very vocal about your feelings about Color Engineering um, to a point that was like pages and pages of Twitter tweets of you just (laughs) taking photos of pages (laughs) why did this thing just hit you so hard Um, well I think
3: I think Yokoyama is just, um, he's working with different ideas about content, about form, um, about construction than anyone in North American comics is, um, and I think it's, it's natural that, you know, he's, I think he's coming to comics with similar precepts to a lot of our art comics artists, um, like I see a lot of similar ideas that I see in say, a Gary Panter comic or even CF's work in Yokoyama but it's run through this it's like you're reading it in translation it's run through this filter of otherness and foreignness that you know I not being a part of you know not engaging with Japanese comics as a native of Japan would and also I think not being a part of Japanese culture I don't understand fully, and I can't fully explain, and it just, the, the difference of it just hits me so powerfully, and I mean, Yokoyama is also just possessed of such a godlike talent and skill for manipulating, you know, the reader reaction and reader's experience in the way that all great cartoonists do, that coupled with that foreignness, and his intention I think to create something very foreign and alien and unapproachable um, it just gives his work so much impact when you kinda can't find a way in and are just reduced to really he really makes you the reader a passive receptor rather than a participant in color engineering And, um, and I just I find that so valuable when when the pages are that pretty
1: for, um, for listeners who haven't, uh, who aren't aware of him, um, yeah, he has two books out this year, Garden and Color Engineering. He's a Japanese artist and he does these, they're, um, they're very strange books in which um, kind of cypher-like characters move through weird environments. Um, there's gigantic engineering experiments where mountaintops will have their tops shoved off and glass uh, sheets will come down between the, the valleys to make uh, water tanks out of the mountains. I know that doesn't make any sense, but just to get the idea that there are these bizarre things, uh, a lot of artificial grass, um, a a lot of uh, things like that. Um, And uh, what uh, what, one thing I, what reminded me of in a kind of a weird way was um, he reminds me of Rube Goldberg. um, And, uh, you know, in the sense he makes these like kind of crazy um, machines that are completely absurd and there's no real point to them. And, and part of the whole the fun of it is just how elaborate and crazy they are. Um uh in color engineering they'll they'll talk up they'll like I like how the characters will just they'll they'll trade theories with each other about how these different things happened, these uh these gigantic uh, machines or, or landmarks were developed. Um, but the difference is that Rube Goldberg is um, you know, obviously more going for laughs, whereas Yokoyama is often is very kind of disturbing almost in ways I don't really understand exactly why
2: i think it's um and i think you said earlier tim that you found it interesting that a lot of a lot of comics this year are kind of about uh movement and studies of of navigation what was that you said that
1: yeah that's correct
2: yeah yeah because it because i actually think this and i kind of not so much associate but sort of mentally connect yokoyama a bit with. the sort of studies of movement that I thought were prominent in a lot of the Fort Thunder artists at the times, particularly uh, Matt Brinkman's Teratoid Heights and uh, Brian Chippendale's Maggots. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually the strongest area. Not that everyone was drawing the same thing or anything, but that, that was the strongest area, that sort of impulse of uh, comics making existed in. And Yokoyama... Kind of does the same thing. What what's interesting? And I, I've used the word interesting a million times already because <laughs> I, because I'm uncreative. But um,
3: those comics uh, are interesting, dude. Come on.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I shouldn't deny myself. Um, but. He renders, generally, and this is how he's sort of grown from book to book to book, but generally, particularly in the original uh, New Engineering, which was his first book that came out in uh, the United States, and I think it was a combination of, I think, his first two books in Japan, but um, it's this all occurs in a very realistic, stylized, manga-ish realistic, but essentially realistic space, occasionally framed in such a way to suggest abstraction, but it's a very solid, almost like you can cut your finger, like touching the edge of these lines kind of sharpness to it, which then kind of exploded into the the book-length train ride of travel, and then sort of started to have characters talking about it in Garden. What color engineering does um, is it sort of mixes this up with the addition of color, and Yokoyama had done a book that, that hasn't appeared in the United States called baby boom which is a very very curious side trip for him and a very uh worthwhile one i think but um color engineering does full color the whole way and he he kind of disrupts the stability of his world by adding color because it's never quite the same color sometimes it's it's the same super, super sharp kind of almost Photoshop stuff. Sometimes it's it's smeary watercolors. Sometimes it's photographic elements. Sometimes it's these crazy colored pencil sketch things. And the effect it has is amazing because where the viewer or the reader would previously be sort of observing all these things as if in sort of a, a heightened... Uh, alternate, altered state, watching these things happen as if, you know, um, looking at a, a Martian world that's kind of like ours. In color engineering, it's almost like you're getting sensations that you can't understand. I've I've actually um, probably ridiculously dubbed this Yokoyama's The Tree of Life, and <laughs> that's because not just because it opens with a Big Bang, which is exactly what it does. It opens with a Big Bang that doesn't create the universe. It's a man-made creation, but it kicks off the book. Um, But it sort of takes this fragmented, uh, almost God's eye view of the world, but it's not a stable God. It's a God that's that's feeling things, almost as if he's picking up on things that Yokoyama's people can't really speak about because they often kind of, Teeter on the edge of saying something emotional or saying something really deep, but they always come back to just describing what they look, what they're looking at. And the book, as it progresses, kind of goes back and back and back and back again because there's all these. Vignettes, and then suddenly, near the end of the book, he reprises all of the vignettes as these double-page spreads to show how they all act as double-page comics as well. He's planned it all that way, and then you get Yokoyama himself in text explaining how each story acts to you so you don't mistake it for something that isn't totally representational, and then it suddenly uh, dives back into people entering (laughs) a building, and looking at you, and that's... It, it's the same image on, like, the last page on the back cover, the front cover. It's just people looking at you, because he's not a fucking monotheist, man. We're all fucking gods here. I, I can curse,
4: right? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I'm in Canada. It's okay. Uh, you know, okay, it,
4: okay. It,
1: an interesting thing is that um my understanding is that uh, color engineering did not start as... And you can tell because it has... A, not that any of his books have a narrative, really, but there's no... or even less narrative in <laughs> this one. But it started out as... Uh, an art book. It was just a collection of his paintings and drawings and things like that. And then, um, in my understanding my is he just couldn't help himself and he just started creating these stories when the book was getting put together and made it into comics. Um, so, that um, doesn't invalidate anything that you said, but it's interesting where it came from, um, you know, how, yeah. how it was created.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to move us along. Um, so we still have. Good chunk of list left, and uh, this easily segues into um, the finally returned uh, Kramer's ergot number eight um, from the always quiet and humble Sammy Harkham. Um, very excited to see the return of Kramer's, the last one being the massive surfboard of a book um, that came out, I guess, four years ago, three years ago, a while ago. Um, You guys are at Brooklyn. I presume you all got a copy of Kramer's 8. Tell me about it.
2: I also have a crackpot theory about this. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's, um... I I, I think Kramer's 8 is, uh, uh... Significant departure. Not just in that, um... Just in terms of dimensions and, uh... You know how it looks and feels, it seems almost a response to Kramer 7, which was this huge, gigantic coffee table book slash substitute coffee table that had all of these artists, many, many artists doing short stories in a big way. And this is a rather small book, I think physically the smallest Kramer's ever. Uh, and it has a smaller group of artists doing longer stories. But um, it's also maybe the most conceptually uh conceptually aggressive Kramers that I can remember Kramers being because it it opens with this uh this essay from Ian uh, Savonius that um basically suggests that comics are a load of stupid worthless shit um mostly in being an attachment uh to this sort of capitalist impulse uh You know, the demolition of the revolutionary program in art that it's part and parcel with. And that acts as a real introduction to the work because most of the uh, stories therein are very, very nervous and very despairing almost of uh society society breaking down and and Jimbo and his friends being hypnotized by entertainment in a ball and this esoteric murder ballad from uh Sammy Harkham about which is sex magic and marital mayhem and Johnny Ryan having uh you know this astronaut being absorbed into like this hive mind that's taken his uh his lover away and uh you know, Gabrielle Bell with this also a murder story. Uh, uh, Dashawn Frank Santoro just taking this completely aghast look at To Catch a Predator uh, Dateline, a very kind of sympathetic look at the um, dishonesties and formula behind it. I think it's it's really it's looking for something else in society, and by that it's looking for something else. In comics, and I don't know if it really succeeds in doing that. From from listening to the, from reading the introduction, I kind of thought I was in for a World War III illustrated, a hardline art comics edition, and it doesn't do that. It it takes this more jittery kind of what the hell is going on kind of style, and then it ends amazingly with this. It's the biggest thing in the entire book. This huge block of oh, wicked Wanda comics, which is the first time I think Kramers has offered vintage material because it's actual no. old penthouse comics
0: excuse me no the um i think in five and six well, well there's the first du- time
2: it's offered it without commentary i okay. mean without okay. an introduction it's just kind of slapped down there and i think it's it's the exclamation point on what the introduction has because it's kind of i mean it, it it's striking and uh i guess kind of interesting art but it's also kind of uh harsh to get through and i think they're saying well is is this what it is kind of a little annie fanny copyish thing that's just uh decadent and nasty is is this what our legacy is is this comics i think is what it's asking and i don't think kramers has ever asked something like that before and i think that's a valuable thing that it's doing
1: i like that theory
2: (laughs) good job (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, but my therapist liked it, too.
0: <laughs> they don't even read these things. Tim, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, um, and maybe just so we can have a little uh, clarity. It's uh, published, this in the previous book we mentioned are published by your co-editor at the Comics Journal, just so folks know that.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> uh, although I don't... That, yeah, yeah, that's true. But he hasn't... Didn't publish earlier Kramers, so I hadn't really thought about it that way. But you're right. Um,
2: I don't I, think he edited it either, though. No, I think no, it was no, just, it's just Sam, published. There. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, Sammy Harkham. Um, I I uh, I made the mistake of not having read the introduction, so I couldn't come up with a good theory like that. Um, so uh, I just thought of it as a pretty solid issue of Kramers. Um, a, lot of, a lot of good stories in here. Um, uh, the CF one was interesting. It was um, just the, uh, it just seemed the, this kind of like an erotic interlude. I thought the Kevin Hozango one was really um, interesting too. I uh, just the way it kind of, um, it didn't really. I'm not. I'm being terrible at talking right now. Uh, it has it's kind of a typical EC comic style science fiction genre story that doesn't have a twist ending. Basically, um, is the way I read it, and it, that by itself. Leads to really weird effects to people who are trained like I am to expect that twist, um, and, and there's just lots of solid comics in here. It's basically my my uh, my take on it. Um,
3: what what do you think, Matt? Um, well, I have a similar theory to Joe's, but uh, I differ on a couple of points. Um, I think I think that Ian Sinonius' um, introduction is sort of, they sort of take that basically, alright, so the old Kramers all the, all the older Kramers were sort of about expanding the boundaries of comics by incorporating that was sort of the, the big um, the big place to see you know, 2000s art comics that were as much about crazy mark making and sort of found art incorporations of like sketchbook passages and things like that um, and all kinds of Using different crazy media to make your comics, um, and that was what Kramer's was about: was looking outward and expanding the sphere of what comics were. And it, you know, featured sort of like collage pages and pages of just straight imagery that wasn't sequential. And then this one is, except for a few really awesome uh, pages of airbrush art by Takeshi Murata, yeah, and 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 uh like noise imagery intro and outro by uh, Robert B. um this one's all comics and it's all very conventional comics too in fact this is like in a lot of ways that cf um story which is probably my favorite thing he's ever done is the most conventional comic he's ever done mm-hmm. um it looks the most like other comics and pretty much right down the line there's nobody doing anything that crazy like um that kevin h story Yeah, it it mimics the EC Comics formula, except it's less, you know, less surprising and less (laughs) interesting. And that's what's interesting about it. Um, And, you know, Johnny Ryan does a very straight, sort of Kirbyist type story. And it's like they, and Sammy Harkin, same thing. And it's like they've, they're kind of, it's like a retrenching. It's like they've, we've taken it as far as we can maybe, or this group of artists has taken it as far as they want to, is probably is closer to what I'm thinking. And um and now let's go back to the strengths that comics have and this this sort of core of what they are, which is like shitty, you know, capitalist tools, commercialized art. But let's see how good we can make it. So it's like this it's like this almost uh like recommitting to the boundaries that have characterized comics for so long and held them back for so long. And it's like these artists who have pretty much all spent the vast majority of their careers working outside these boundaries, deciding to do work within them and see what they can come up with. And I'm not quite sure what to think about the Oh, Wicked Wanda comics at the end. <laughs> it's in, in a way, it, it feels like a warning to me like, you know, they're saying that yes, you can do this, and yes, these boundaries can be valuable to produce approachable, you know, just solid work, but at the same time if you subscribe to them too heavily, you end up with this just completely turgid shit. Not that it isn't interesting, slightly, but, um, but, you know, I, I couldn't get through those 40 pages of Oh, Wicked Wanda comic, story See, even, after story, I and, had to come and back man.
2: To and man, talk about, like, uh, th- thinking there's no uh, taboos anymore, but in this this golden age of reprints, just putting this huge block of vintage comics in the book, not necessarily for the purposes of, of making fun of it or anything, but just for saying, oh my god, as part of the context of a larger work, that's, that's kind of, it felt transgressive to me, honestly, given the, the disposition of how a lot of presentations of vintage materials are.
3: Yeah, it feels dark. Those those yeah. comics feel really dark in a way that I don't think they probably did when they first came out. But that presentation after all this... And and Joe is totally right that it is a lot of very apocalyptic material. To see that stuff, it's almost like this is, you know, maybe the world that's coming, just this decadent dream world of, of abject horror mixed in with, like, hot girls.
2: Yeah, I, I also really like how... um. I like how it's sort of a how you're you're framing this as sort of a development of the the Kramer's artists taking on something different because the the grumbles you you, you hear every so often about uh, succeeding uh, editions of Kramer's is that they've you know they've they've stopped their project of of finding new artists and breaking like new stuff because Kramer's Four was like a a meteor hitting the scene of just stuff people are like oh shit about. And it's interesting that, um, that sticking to kind of people who've worked with Sammy before uh, can
0: have its own own quality. I found it. it it's interesting looking at the comics. Like uh, Kevin Izenga's comic, Kevin has been doing some of the most interesting, introspective work of his career right now. And that one was just such a stripped-down, straight-up comic. Like I wasn't it, – it's curious that he put this kind of work in there. Where previously you'd have <laughs> something like *Jupiter's Jacobs, uh, which is an amazing, sprawling story of, like, religious identity. And it's just like a Twilight Zone type thing I think I read somewhere described as.
1: I just realized I should have said spoiler alert before saying there wasn't a twist.
0: <laughs> I think this whole show is a spoiler alert. Um... I'm going to move on to uh, a slightly more idiosyncratic comic a little north of the border. Uh, my fellow Canadian and um, published by the same folks that published the Ink Studs book. You may have heard of it. Uh, Chimo by David Collier.
1: I'm glad you pronounced that out loud because I wasn't sure if it was Chimo or Chimo.
0: Oh, I still don't know. <laughs> um, we'll pretend it's Chimo. Um, what did you guys think? Crazy so... comic?
2: it's one of my favorite things of the year. I I think I think you've said it's one of your favorite things too. Um is that is that accurate?
0: Me? Yeah. I I liked it quite a lot. Um I actually only read it last week. Oh, all in right. In preparation right. for today. Um but I am a big fan of Collier. Uh I think he's one of the Canadian giants. And for me this book was really interesting because I've I've read criticisms where people find it meanders too much. It doesn't really have a straight direction it goes in. But this is this is like a conversation with Dave. Well, I don't is... I, I
2: don't agree that it doesn't have a, a structure. But no, go on, go on.
0: Well, this is this is Dave. Like this really captures what he's like, and he really synthesizes himself in this comic, and puts himself out there, and really plays with it, and is able to jump around these things, and in kind of has that in media res part in it too and I don't know I loved it
2: yeah I I really liked it it's uh it's maybe it's maybe the most old school indie comic to come out of the year it's uh this is this is just straight shot stuff from the uh I I mean I don't want to say the American splendor tradition because I'm not sure if the, the lineage directly factually traces back to that but in this kind of I'm gonna stand here drawing myself in a panel and I'm gonna tell you stuff kind of autobiographical comic it's <laughs> i
0: think it's, it's a little more exciting than american splendor
2: oh yeah yeah but it's <laughs> a little but it's it's in the, it's the same idiom a very similar idiom and um it's there is a through line going through this and in a way i was just really really impressed on how this is an expansion of collier's earlier comics it it feels just like his earlier comics but they keep getting longer and now it's graphic novel length and it's it's an amazing work of pacing how he keeps this going like through anecdotes and then and the anecdotes all have round panel borders sheldon uh sugar and spike kind of panel borders while the present scenes have the sharp borders, which I always love. But it kind of dives in and out of these uh, memories and anecdotes and sometimes just just slap down into it is art he made in the course of the story. And the story has him kind of re-enlisting in the military as part of this uh, cartooning project he's uh, signed up for. And the through line of it is really this kind of almost kind of subtle story of like aging and, and feeling you're, you're not accomplishing what you need to, because you know, it's, it starts out with them. It starts and ends with him working out, but he tries to rejoin like the military and he has like injuries and there's like his, his dog dies and he gets like a cat. And um, it's, I mean, it's just, it really kind of, kind of hit me in this as this struggle against uh Obsolescence that he doesn't necessarily win, but he just uh, you know he navigates through it, and it's it's really entertaining in watching him his thought processes uh, spill out. You know,
1: I, I think there's no question though. I mean, I don't. Well, it does meander at times, I and mean, he repeats things sometimes, like a three panels. You know, he'll repeat I mean, on the same page. or will repeat it in two different panels sometimes. Um, same information. Um, I really liked it too, though. I know I, I'm I'm just saying. I'm just saying that for the sake of saying it, um, but I really enjoyed the book, and I think he's enormously likable. Um, I am very curious. One thing I really liked, which is going into what you were just saying, was how uh, something that happens near the end, which I won't spoil by saying, but uh, <laughs> what, what he gets in trouble for um, is, is so uh, it's so um, anticlimactic in certain ways. Um, I don't know if you'll if you guys both all know what I'm talking about or not. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's so anticlimactic, and so funny, and so perfect. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I really liked it. Um, but I am uh, – I, I kind of am baffled at what you think the structure is. Um, I don't know if it's easy to say really quickly.
2: Well, maybe using you know the word structure was wrong. I i, I tried to use through line more uh, carefully. But, you know, it's there, there's framing uh, on it. I mean, besides the fact that it starts and ends with these uh, – military themed drawings he's done it's kind of an intro and outro you know it it begins with his exercising it, it ends with him on a bike and it's it's all about you know trying to to improve yourself as an artist trying right. to improve your body trying you know uh, yeah, it's,
1: it's all very thematically focused I definitely would agree with that um yeah yeah I didn't mean to be challenging I was just curious no, no pl-
2: <laughs> please please do challenge me please
1: <laughs> what, what did you think Matt
3: um, I thought, I agree. I thought it was a very writerly comic in a year of, what well, in a year where I thought most of the good comics, uh, the visual end was holding up more of the weight. And I thought I had a really good time reading it just because of that and because, um, and also just because of how, yeah, how blast from the past 80s alternative comics it is. I think it's very much a part of the Harvey Picar idiom. And, um, and he, he, Collier's drawing, you know, he's not the he's not the best artist, but he can he does everything he sets out to do with his art, and um, and it's very much in the sort of fake Robert Crumb '80s alternative comic style, and it's really just um, if you are a fan of comics done in that style, this is like a really long one that that manages to stay engaging for the entire time, and um, and is is told with a really a very sort of winning personality Um, you really you like Collier the the whole time he's telling you this story which is pretty much at least for what I've read completely unique for this style of sort of discursive comic you know you don't you certainly don't like Robert Crumb when he's telling you about his like weird sexual perversions I was never a huge fan of basically listening to Harvey Picard yell at me you know and um
1: (laughs) Carol Tyler does it I think um kind of similar things Mm
3: -hmm. oh yeah 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 I, I that's a good point it is it is and there's actually a couple similarities to Carol Tyler's work now that you mention it but um but yeah I really I really enjoyed and I I was also um I I was surprised and um and pleased by how long he does manage to basically keep telling you what's essentially one long anecdote with a lot of uh with a lot of <laughs> tangents, um, but it's like, is he going to keep telling me the story? Is it going to stay interesting? You know, and you keep wondering this, and and he does, and it does. Um, it's a really impressive, I think, work of writing that he sort of manages to pull off <laughs> basically one long run-on sentence for 200 pages.
0: I was I was going to say it's kind of like the way Jack Kerouac did the road um, or on the road. Almost just seems like. He just went and did this book, and bam, here it is. I drew it and wrote it. And...
2: It's kind of a, a Spalding Gray almost thing to me, you know, like a monologue.
1: I really yeah. like the the cover is really great. I love the title is the subtitle is Collier's Canadian Forces Artist Program Story. This that's what it is. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, but I didn't even notice it until after I read the book because I, I couldn't even understand what was on the cover. Um, but there's it's basically it's a uh, a, you see a big metal battleship um, that you see from the, the top uh, in the ocean, and then there's a, a, a circle that says "inside creativity" with like a, a finger beckoning you inside, and and you see one of the other artists that was in this military program, and it was um and his pro his uh, project was to have um, a pen hanging from a string inside the boat that would draw on the piece of paper as the boat moved rocked back and forth. I don't know if you remember that. Um, yeah, but it seems like such a perfect metaphor for the entire story. Um, it's right there on the cover that you it's, it's impossible to understand until you read it. Um, and I don't it's just kind of a, it's a really subtle, beautiful, humble thing. Um, and it, and
2: it contains the conflict of the book too, because he's very, uh, uh, kind of in awe of this guy and what he can do while, while Collier himself has to fuss and think about everything. And you watch him fuss and think about everything through the creation of the story. So it, 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 uh, it symbolized, Well, even it embodies that, uh, big struggle of the book. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm going to move us on to another Canadian. um, And I know there's some strong feelings about this book. uh, Paying for it by Chester Brown. Um, I'm personally a fan of Chester Brown. I do have some issues with the book. Um, It's a little stiff. That wasn't a pun. Um, As well as the portrayal of women in it was definitely not successful and it didn't really show a lot of insight into the process um, for those who don't know paying for it is about Chester Brown being a John and how he got into being a John and his experiences with um, sex trade workers. Why don't we start with you, Tim? Uh, okay. before we get into into the really the depth of it what, what were your thoughts well, on well, paying per- for it? Well, you said there was you. You didn't think there's much insight into what into um... In, into. It it was about Chester's experience, and and that's that's true. It's about Chester's experience, but you don't really get insight into what the women are going through. I see, and uh, like there'll be things like, uh, "Oh, she's not there anymore." Oh, oh well, whatever. Like, not really understanding the the context of what is sex trade and exploitation, and none of this really comes into that it's very like, it's a clean look at sex trade. I really, I liked the book a lot. I think, I
1: think about it a lot. It's been, um, seven months or eight months since it came out. Um, it's, uh, I read it, I think in maybe an hour and a half when I first got it. I mean, I read it it one sitting like immediately. I have to finish this book. That doesn't happen that often with books. Um, and I'm still thinking about it seven months later. Um, I think those are both signs. Those are signs of strong work. Um, I think a lot of people's uh, complaints about it are accurate, and but the the things and just so people know. It, it, basically, Chester Brown, as uh, his friend Seth says in the book, is a robot. Um, he doesn't have. Doesn't seem to have any. Um, at least the way he presents himself, where he has he presents to everything very analytically, clinically. His girlfriend breaks up with him. It doesn't really bother him. So, but he decides he doesn't want to deal with human relationships anymore with women so he starts going to prostitutes um and it's just it's kind of just fascinating you, you go into this he, he presents everything very coldly um about the whole process of what what happens I think there's an inherent um fascination with that uh with the criminal underground I think for most readers or at least there is for me um this is a world I didn't know anything about really um and i i just found it uh fascinating and i also found the flaws fascinating um i think what, what makes chester brown uh an interesting artist and what could have uh, in other hand has not been as good as that i think he really did honestly portray his own um his own and what intentionally or not his own um, uh what's the right word uh shortcomings in different ways um the, he, he, he um i don't know and and the whole crazy rant at the end doesn't say what he thinks it says but it kind of works uh, he has like the, there's like 50 pages of arguments about why prostitution is uh the name the way we should all go and why in the future all relationships <laughs> will be prostitution based um which is insane um uh, but i yeah. think it kind of works in like a, a way like pale fire does where um you know, there's these uh, annotations. When there's a whole other novel that's created um, uh, on a different level than what the writer thinks is they're, or they're telling, and I just found it just enjoyable on multiple levels. Um, and and I guess a lot of people seem to take it as, um, and I don't, I think this is how you took it, Matt. But I might be wrong. Um, but other people too, as um, they they, they uh, reacted it more directly as a manifesto level. And I think if I did take it that that, that um, literally I might have different feelings about it, but I, I kind of reacted to it more as a work of art than as a, a polemic, and Chester Brown might not appreciate the fact that I took it that way, but it is the way I took it.
3: Yeah, I think um, I think it's constructed to be a polemic and, um, and I think once you actually deal with the book's content, you're dealing with a very different, to my mind, less pressing set of issues. Than what he actually intended And I agree that the book's flaws are probably The most interesting part about it But um, but I just uh, For me it was difficult to set aside The fact that he had Created to my mind What was a very ignorant polemic About um, About prostitution And about why it was a good thing um, and, and I think uh, The thing that, that Seth says about about Chester being a robot and about him not having certain feelings that most humans do is accurate <laughs> but, um, but, I, but what people seem to excuse out of hand to my mind largely because of the influence of Robert Crumb and this idea that the alternative cartoonist is a crazy weirdo and that's okay and it's like yeah that's okay until the, uh, the societal niceties that you start dismissing are the important ones you know, like, I I think Chester's lack of certain parts of himself that are there for all of us um, leads him to become kind of a disgusting, horrible person, to be honest, to disregard certain, uh... to to have less regard for other people than um, other human beings than I think most people do, and I just um... it's, it's the same thing with while I quite enjoyed having a discourse, basically, a one-sided discourse with David Collier in Chimo, um, I was not prepared to really give Chester Brown the time of day. You know, if this was a conversation, a story he was telling me across a bar or at a party, I'd probably get up and leave, um, just because I'm not interested, and I don't really
1: support
3: anything. No, that was the end of uh, what I was saying.
1: Well, I was say, it's interesting that you just, I hadn't made this connection before, but I, I can imagine um, someone who had very strong feelings about the military feeling the same way about David Collier. Um, you know, if you really were anti-war, you could say, why are you joining this um, death this, this and destruction creating organizational force that, you know, does this and this and this to the human soul? Um, I think there's, uh, is it? I, I guess... It, sounds, it seems to me like you have um i have more ambivalent feelings about prostitution i basically don't know what i think about it um and that's one of the things i liked about the book is that it gave me maybe distorted but it gave me some information to think about it um and uh and that's not really the main reason i like it but i, I guess that's the reason i didn't feel strongly against it is i just don't know what i think i i hear people talk about legalization and i they make sense to me and people well, talk about how exploitative it is, and they, they make sense to me. So I, I, I guess that's, where I, that's why I didn't uh, react as strongly to it.
3: Yeah, well, I'm the first to admit I'm too close to, to this book to really have a, the, you know, the appropriate critical reaction to it, to view it dispassionately. I mean, I have a few friends who have worked in the sex industry and had really horrible experiences. Uh-huh. And I mean, I make a comic about prostitution, so I, I should probably not be hating on the competition
0: either.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what,
1: what
0: did you think, Joe? I don't think I've ever heard you talk about it. Yeah you're surprisingly quiet.
1: Yeah, well
2: um, I think I find I think I find the comics component of paying for it to be a bit more a bit more stylized almost almost arched than a lot of other people do because it's it, it's done in these very short chapters which are um, m- mostly deal with uh, Chester's sexual exploits and some of them some of them almost end like little blackout gags like he kind of goes away like i'll write a bad review about this prostitute on the internet and and that's the end of the chapter and it's and it, it, it kind of starts coming off like the sort of withdrawn like skeletal way chester brown draws himself and the the sort of uh Unchanging, identical movements that like Seth and Joe Matt make, like their action figures being posed. There, there seems an, quite a lot of artifice to the comic to me, which is interesting because Brown is tr- interesting again. Um, <laughs> because Brown is. Is, is there anything <laughs> you're not interested in, Joe? Very little. Very, very little. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because Brown is trying to give this really dispassionate account of what's happening like here's the facts, here's the facts, here's the facts. but I find the the drawing of it like the the making of it to be to be really um, uh, artifice is the word that keeps coming to my mind and maybe it's just the politics of it but I I frequently thought of Steve Ditko's work actually reading the comics of it in this particularly in the very expository, logical, let's spell everything out style of the dialogue, the sort of right. stilted conversations that every character stilted but clearly very thought through by the artist kind of style of conversation that that's totally unreal but focused on like presenting information like this and this. It's like it's like Mr. A on the make almost this comic. Um
0: <laughs> but I should let's... I should note that there's this little video of Chester from the from the spring where he's wearing a Mr. A shirt that was a publicity yes. thing for T Yeah. But
2: Ditko's comics, which I I love to pieces. I love the Robin Snyder. I'm a Mr. A. Ditko fan, motherfucker. Um, but, but, wow. but the Ditko stuff, it occurs on this... Everything he does, I mean, almost everything he does is either an, an old-time crime or horror-style comic or a, a superhero-ish comic, and so they all inevitably take place on this... this mythic kind of storytelling, generic style where everything's heightened and, you know, uh, uh, his own blend of Randian objectivism always triumphs over force and fraud. And, you know, Ditko's art is totally blended into that, the way he uses solid blacks and white and and interspersing lines to represent psychological dismay and how it's always about the neuroses of people who don't understand that A is A. I, I can really respond to that what, what Chester Brown does is, (laughs) what Chester Brown does is, I, I, I I can't help but, but use every part of the Buffalo. I have to read the prose stuff in the back in tandem with the comic and it jars really, really badly because like Matt says, it's, it's a polemic. It's trying to get you to, to really buy into what he thinks about prostitution and, you know. and it just doesn't work. It it doesn't click at all with any experience I've had with um how people, you know, get into sex work, how they consume sex work. It it seems unreal. I think uh Abbe Kosla used the term whore Epcot to describe the world he's describing. And that that seems apropos
1: to me. Um it's um uh, I, do you guys not like reading people who are I am not talking about just comics either. Like you just don't like reading crazy theories about stuff? Um No, I love well, crazy theories. I
0: love it.
3: Um Go on, I just,
0: go on.
3: For me it was it was it was, it was, it was the response, I guess, to, to Chester's crazy theories. You know, people dismiss Ditko as a crank. Um and I think if I and I think that Joe is right on that, uh that Chester's very similar. I, I, too, saw a strong Ditko through line, even in the way he draws this, like, cartoony city behind everything. Um, it's like the same cityscape you see in Ditko comics, and that was actually one of my favorite parts was the way he draws that cityscape. But, um, but, you know, while Ditko in comic circles is just seen as this crank who happened to create Spider-Man, um, I kind of, I, you know, I think there is a lot more complexity, to the issue of prostitution, than a simple yes or no, but um, I think the credence that people seem to be giving Chester's crazy theories was just totally unwarranted. Just based on the, you know, the, even just the like the amount of research he obviously did and didn't do, and um, and the amount of sort of effort he'd sort of put forth into creating a workable theory, I thought people were giving him entirely too much credit.
4: And part yes, of it I, is,
2: we'll oh, go ahead. And part of it is that, you know, like I said, it's not it's not really existing. It it it, it has this arch style, this kinda comicy style, but the prose part really beats you back to the fact that this is supposed to be information. This is not existing in a kind of aesthetic realm. This is supposed to be nitty gritty stuff. And ultimately, and I thought the best review I read about paying for it was Noah Bertlatsky's. And I hope I'm not misrepresenting his position here, but in that it sort of uses the idea of of unfettered capitalism is kind of a, a relief from the neuroses of having to, to deal with people like Chester Brown says the the weight is lifted from him when he starts using prostitution and, and expanding that in almost a, a policy argument, not a really specific policy argument, but certainly a polemic. It, it just, it just jars so badly. It's, it, it, it goes against the reality. I think he's trying to set up and that makes the book really, you know, uh, it, it kind of...
1: It, it's it's
2: yeah, these
4: dissatisfying. Are, these Dissati- are the things I like about the book. That's <laughs> so,
1: I feel like I'm a crazy person because you guys keep talking about all this stuff. It's like, this is what I like about it. Sure, sure. I guess I w- the one thing I would say, and maybe we should move on, I don't know, um, is just that I think both of you maybe put more credence into the idea that Chester Brown's ideas could persuade anybody. I, I didn't read a single person who who pers- thought that he was right but I might not have been reading the right things I kind of want to read those too so if you guys I'm, not worried.
2: I'm not worried so much about persuasion <laughs> I'm worried about how the book doesn't work as a book really it's, it's just weird but I, I can understand liking it's weirdness believe me
0: um, let's just say there's not a big uh, libertarian movement in Canada and uh, Chester seems to be holding the, the flame for it <laughs> um, I am going to move us on though
5: They say that you're a run lover Oh, you say it isn't so But if you put me down for another I'll know, believe me I'll know Cause a night has a thousand eyes And a thousand eyes Can't help but see If you are true to me. So remember when you tell those little white lies that the night has a thousand eyes. You say that you're at home when you phone me, and how much you really care? Though you keep telling me that you're lonely. I'll know if someone is there Cause the night has a thousand eyes And a thousand eyes can't help but see If you are true to me So remember when you tell those little white lies That the night has a thousand eyes one of these days You're gonna be sorry Cause your game I'm gonna play And you find out Without really trying Each time that My kiss is free Cause a night Has a thousand eyes And a thousand eyes Will see me true And oh
0: And we're back, Inkstead, ZITR 101.9 FM. Uh, that was a brief break we're taking. We're getting pretty in depth with these comics. I am joined by Matt Seneca, Joe McAuliffe, and Timothy Hodler. Timothy, or Tim, I'm sorry if I, if you prefer Timothy, and I say Tim. I realize maybe I'm being bad. Um, Rob? That's wrong. We'll go, okay, I get it. Um, We just had a very in depth talk on paying for it, and we're rounding out our picks from summing down lists that each of these gentlemen gave me. And I kind of wanted to go into um, Jim Woodring's Congress of Animals. I finally read it today, and it felt like the most best use of classical, epic ideas in a comic with not appearing to be infused with that. I don't know if that made sense of what I said. But I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think what it do you was... mean, like, classical, epical? I, it really reminded me of some of the ideas of, like, metamorphosis and stuff like that. How like... so? Really getting me to talk. Ah. Uh objection I want that struck <laughs> I do have the delete button um it's the way he weaves this world of just like constant changing and things happening and it all kind of just keeps moving and and not everything really connects but it really sprawls
1: it's interesting yeah. that you that you connected that with um, with Greek literature as opposed to um, Hindu stuff um, or Buddhist. Um, literature, um, although I guess there was a lot of uh, overlap back in those days.
0: Well, I think uh, specifically metamorphosis, uh, not thinking so much Homeric, and I haven't read any Hindu literature. My own fault. Sorry. No problem. (laughs) Uh, What do you guys think? Did you like it?
3: I think that that point you bring up about the constant changing is really uh, important because I think... um... I get, I think I get less, this is not to say anything negative about them, I love Jim Woodring's stories to death, but I think I get less out of them than, um, than a lot of readers, like some, he's one of those guys who, um, people will say that they saw this in it, and they saw that, and and it's about this, and it's about that, and, and I'll look and say, really? Um, because I, I just kind of see those as sort of bizarre, sort of allegorical, funny animal stories, like, kind of almost a modern Aesops fables, Greek literature again. But um but I think my my favorite thing about Jim Woodring's comics is the art. Um I and I was just I think this might be his best looking comic ever, just I was blown away by how masterful he's become with his style and how how little it references anything else. Um you know when you look at earlier Jim Woodring there's a very obvious Crumb influence but now I think, I think he's as much a sort of stylistic titan of his own as Crumb ever was and I think his stories are better um, and, uh, and I was just, just blown away by how much how much movement he packs into his panels not even with the way they're composed or his, his blocking or anything but just that line um, I think is by far the best line in comics. just the, that squiggly, thick and thin line and the way that he makes things jump off the page with it and, and keeps everything vibrating with it is just completely astonishing. And to see him work on a full-length graphic novel, which is his second one after Weathercraft last year. Um, and just to see that movement sustained for that long, is just so marvelous.
0: Now, someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think part of this squiggly line, and it's the same thing you'll see in Dave Cooper's stuff, is partially a result of just the tool he's using with the dip pen. No? Yeah, yeah. No? I'm wrong?
3: <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. You can't really get a, a sustained um, line weight with that tool. So, yeah, in that squiggly line, you can see the gesture in it. Um, and that's what's that's. that's another thing that's awesome about Jim Woodring is how much an evidence his tool is
0: now Joe I'm curious is there a masterful conspiracy in this book
2: well hmm I think uh, I think Congress of the Animals which I loved completely that and color engineering are kind of in a a perpetual state of conflict for my absolute best of 2011 uh, my much desired title of that sort Um, But, I mean, it's very much of a piece of Weathercraft, his prior graphic novel, um, in that Weathercraft was kind of about reinforcing this this cyclical nature, both of, you know, funny comics and, you know, a a cycle of life where Manhog kind of becomes evolved and then, you know, makes this sacrifice and becomes de-evolved, whereas... Congress of the Animals is all about change. It's about Frank, the anthropomorphic funny animal. This is the second funny animal comic on yeah, the list. I, I forgot it yeah, yeah. Um, it's about him like exploring the world beyond his kind of his kind of sinister cartoon realm, and just uh, you know swinging the sword at dangers and discovering love and discovering that yeah, I mean, love is real. it, it it's a little more politically, I guess, or maybe just social satire-minded than Woodring's uh, Frank stuff usually gets because, you know, Frank loses his house, he has to buy a new one, he has to get like a a shitty job, and this, this eventually drives him into this this change in his life drives him into a state where uh he kind of goes beyond it all and he he discovers that yeah you 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 can meet people you you can fall in love i mean there's there's things that are still beyond your grasp there's beautiful things that are still beyond your grasp and i thought it was it was a, a really eloquent expression of that um it feels of a piece of uh Love and Rockets' uh, new stories, number four, where you could take it... And, of course, all these people are working on more and more comics, but you can take it as kind of an ending to the uh, Locust story, uh, Jaime's work there. And in this way, you can almost take it as kind of the ending of Frank's story, because he's gotten beyond the structures that have sort of repeated for him over and over and you know he he's found like real happiness in the world and I totally agree with Matt that uh this is all done in a really elegant and and gorgeous line Jim Woodring was famously the only one of the after I started like seriously reading comics again around 2002 my my great aunt who has since passed on. Um, she was the one who bought me my very first comics, the old Floyd Godforson, uh reprint Mickey Mouse comics that Gladstone used to do. And uh, she didn't really pay attention to comics beyond the newspaper page. And she would say she liked comics because she read the newspaper comics. And Jim Woodring is the only one of the guys that I was like reading after I started reading comics again that she liked, that she'd look at the Frank comics and she'd be like, yeah, that, that's good stuff. This is funny, good stuff. This guy knows what he's doing, and so I, you know, there's this universality to Woodring stuff that I think makes him precious, particularly among alternative comics, which can seem a little cloistered at times. She didn't like Akira.
0: No, no, no. She, they,
2: they totally lost her when they blew up the city.
0: <laughs> Am I the on, only other person that didn't greet Akira? I'm sorry, um, Tim. What did you think of uh, of the Congress of Animals?
1: I love I love Jim Woodring in general. Um, I uh, and I love this book as well. Um, uh, I like him, I mean it's, it's almost he's a difficult artist for me to talk about. I have to say like I, I don't know what it is that I like about him, but I love him. Um, I, I what, some of the things I like about him are just it, it's so. It's so funny and so scary at the same time, and I don't know why it's funny or why it's scary. Um, it's just... Um, he, an artist. He, one of the um, artists who reminds me of that we are, we've we been talking about is Yokoyama, although they're very different, um, but they're very similar to me, to, at least in my response to them, where there's these very um, kind of opaque um, things happen that is, there's, I can't put my finger on what they mean or what is going on but they provoke deep feelings in me. Um, where Or Jim Woodring, his story is still very old to me. Like they feel like they're tapping into old, natural things, where Yokoyama feels more like um, like uh, new and artificial, um, like uh, Arthur C. Clarke or something, um, like a Rendezvous with Rama. I don't know if you guys ever read that book, but he reminds me a lot of that. Um, uh, so I, I don't know what it is exactly, but... Um, but and I think that's something that a lot of another thing that I think is a trend with artists with cartoonists these days are these stories that are really difficult to read. I mean, you can read them literally, but they don't mean something obvious literally. If that makes any sense.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of. What do you, it doesn't. No, it does. Uh-uh.
1: <laughs> Like, I mean, it's kind of like what Matt like Matt was saying, like, uh, he doesn't, he, people see all these things in it, he doesn't sure if, uh, I I'm, maybe I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting you, Matt, but you're not sure if you see them in it or not. I feel the same way, but I know I see something in it. I just don't know what it is.
3: Yeah, yeah, and honestly, that's one thing I like about Jim Woodring comics, is that I'm not sure I would want to see all these crazy, specific, allegorical, uh, like, plot elements, I kind of like reading this com- these comics and just, just you know, thinking to myself and having this knowledge that, yeah, this is deep, and, um, and maybe these depths are uh, not necessarily better left unplumbed, but I enjoy them more if I just sort of look down into them and don't try to understand.
1: I, I like trying to understand, but I don't like trying too hard. <laughs> that <makes> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess no. I, I guess what I really mean is I, I like, I like to try to understand it, but I don't care if I get it right. I guess that's more what I mean. Yeah,
3: yeah, I agree with that.
0: I'm gonna move us on. to... Joe likes to get it right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, the, the elegance of Woodring stuff is that you don't need to be specific on anything. You can, you could get the the outer. The broad sweep of it and just really enjoy it on that kind of sensual level, you know?
1: Absolutely.
0: The Heavy Hand. uh, Chris Silla. um, Published by Sparkplug. Did it actually come out in 2011? I was thinking maybe it came out in 2010.
2: I only noticed noticed today that the copyright page reads uh, 2010. It was only distributed I think formally through you know, like Diamond Comics or something to uh, comic book stores in March, I think, of this year. I think it actually debuted at a show this year. So I'd, I think we might have broken an internet law here. Like, if, if you hear any sirens approaching you, Robin, just like text me and I'll start talking about Holy Terror.
0: I think I thought we all agreed not to discuss Frank Miller. Or was well, well just... this, this
2: is a break glass in case of emergency, do you? <laughs>
0: um, I'm happy to include it because I really like that book. And uh, Chrysalis was also in the uh, Kramer Zurgot 8. Um, I, I love his cartooning, and I really love that story of just how it just went into this weird area, and it just, it, it's kind of taking from that Fort Thunder generation. I mean, he was printed in Paper Rodeo, but really structuring it and making a good story.
2: Yeah, I'm glad we're uh, following, actually, Woodring with this because there's there's a lot of very specific-seeming images in Uh Scylla's work that I certainly can't discern, and I'm not sure they have um, a really... They, they seem to have really specific meanings to the artist that you don't necessarily have to grasp. I liked uh, an awful yeah. lot of things... Yeah, I like an awful lot of things about the heavy hand. I, I like how it kind of... Is joined with his Kramer's story too, because they're they're both about these kinda kinda driftery guys, but not like really scraggly drifters, like almost suburban-ish asshole dudes who are trying to escape their situation, but they, they can never entirely escape, really. I mean, what the heavy hand is sort of about, and I'll be the first to admit, it can be a somewhat opaque book to get into. It's more filled with vignettes that are kind of filled in with almost seemingly random uh, illustrations uh, depicting, you know, spiders crawling out of an egg or a a dude in a mask fighting a creature with like a big paperclip or something. Um, But the, the general thrust of it is that it's this guy who's trying to get out of town, get out of these multiple women he's dating, and he, he finds himself in this cave with all these researchers looking at these strange eggs that they think are are reptiles inside it, and along the way there's this parable of uh, a guy who, a superheroish guy who witnessed this donkey being beaten by townsfolk, and he summoned eye creatures to destroy the town and rode away with the donkey, and now there's a cult that dress like the eye creatures, but the eye creatures are also real, they're like killing people in the cave, like an like a really evil Matt Brinkman kind of thing. Like they're trying to observe these creatures and they're they're kind of fighting back and eventually it comes to a head where um, things start to break out and it's almost like the world is being obliterated except for these sort of self-described rejects from society who wind up stuck in another sort of constructed society uh, on the outskirts of what's left of humanity, not that we can even see that anything happened with humanity, but maybe it doesn't really matter. The, the evolution of the goats is coming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and breathe. Yeah, this, Thank
1: you. this one also feels like very much kind of old school to me, like um, the kind of uh, indie comics um, from, you know, 20 years ago or so. Uh, like, like Collier, but in a different way. And also, as you said, this is another one of those comics that is a little bit opaque and hard to interpret at times. Um, which I. It's, it's interesting to me that, that there's that commonality in a lot of comics right now. Um, and it, maybe it's always been there, but I, I'm noticing it more or something. I don't know. Um, sure, uh, I, yeah,
2: think, I, uh, I think Scylla requires maybe a little more work put into it than something like Woodring because I think he does lack this more of a broad appeal. You kind of have to really meet this work a little more than halfway,
1: you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, and but one thing I really like about it that I don't think should be uh, missed for people who haven't um, read it or heard of it or seen it is that, is that it's really, really funny. Um,
4: yeah, and, yeah.
1: In a way that uh, it's, it's unfortunately hard to find in, in comics sometimes. Um, and if you are someone who likes funny comics, you should find The Heavy Hand and read it. It's also very weird and disturbing at times. He's got a full
2: quote from uh, Gerald Jablonski, and I'd I'd walk off a cliff if that dude told me.
1: (laughs) I hope that's not true, Joe. Uh, No.
2: I I mean, I have read every word of uh, cryptic wit, and he has not yet told me to walk off a cliff. But (laughs) maybe my teacher will be an ant someday,
1: and it'll just sag into that. Yeah, Just stop reading now. Don't keep reading it.
2: I I do love Gerald Jablonski, though. He's completely awesome.
1: Yeah, he he's a great uh, listener should
3: uh should look him up too.
2: But but what 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 did you think, Matt?
3: Um, well I, I was most struck by um I can't remember who mentioned the how much he's able to distill from the four thunder aesthetic. Um and I thought that was really valuable just because um the I think the Four Thunder Aesthetic, you know, it's it's obviously hugely important. Um it my personally one of my favorite aesthetics to read comic books uh, that are done in, but um, but it's like, you know, it's been sort of maybe a decade since it surfaced uh, in a big way, and it sort of just sits there now in comics. Like, what are we going to do with this? And no one really successfully. And some people have taken it up and done like good pastiches of it, but there are very few people who've been able to actually incorporate it into something. That to their own
4: mm-hmm. and I
3: think that's uh, something that Chris Silla did phenomenally well in this comic um, and and uh, and yes yeah, seeing him apply it to a longer work too which is you know something that the Four Thunder guys have done big comics but not necessarily long comics as much I guess Brian Chippendale recently did If and Oof but other than that there's not a lot of like Four Thunder sort of graphic novels that sit on the shelf and it was a, a pleasure to see this sort of aesthetic ground into Silo's own more sort of conversational, you know, maybe conversation on laughing gas, uh, style comics. Yeah. Um, but, but done with, you know, taking these definite moves from four thunder that I just, you know, I love to see comics like that. And yeah, and I thought it was, it was funny. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was, I had a good time, uh, trying to interpret it and trying to pull meaning from it just because his, his drawing style I, I find really inviting. Um, yeah. Have you it guys read,
1: have you guys oh, read Doug on. Allen's, uh, Steven?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. He reminds me a lot of Doug Allen, um, his drawing style and the sense of humor and, and even like the weird, the kind of weird world that he creates.
2: Yeah. I'm glad Matt's bringing up Fort Thunder too because kind of a, uh, the substance of some of the older Fort Thunder works was this focus on communities being built and existing, and I think the heavy hand has that too, but in a, a much more suspicious and kind of uh, uh, intimidated manner, you know, but I think it shares that thematic fabric too.
3: Yeah, and I like that. I like how amplified everything was and how much sort of like an old horror or suspense sci-fi comic it was, with just everything is a cliffhanger and there's yeah. this, you know, there's this tension and it's sort of a corny tension or like a, a self-aware tension. There's almost an irony to it because he's obviously, you know, very much aware of himself and not trying to create an immersive story that you fall into the same way that like old EC comics or like Basil Wolverton monster comics are but the tension he creates is very similar to that where everything, you know, you hear the ominous music with with at the end of like almost every page (laughs) you know it's it's in over dramatic but in a really enjoyable way
0: I'm going to take this time to shuffle us over to another comic of horror and science fiction Um, the last on our list Mr. Johnny Ryan's uh, Prison Pit book 3 I, Mia culpa, did not read it I'm I'm a bad host um, but I do love Johnny Ryan Why don't one of you guys give me an idea on the book?
3: Well, it's Johnny Ryan does Kirby, man. Um, It's Johnny Ryan
2: does Kirby with, uh, like, a scene in manga pacing, real spread out and stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. And that's something that's starting to honestly bug me a little about Prison Pit is how it's like decompressed comics, you know, and not a lot happens in every volume. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I think that's uh, that's an effect that a lot of manga has when uh, you know, like, or even someone like Naoki Urasawa, where there's a lot of plot in every volume, but often it's it's plot that just ends in in very un ironic, dramatic music uh, like 20th Century Boys, and you'll get just volume after volume where, where seemingly there's been no motion, but there's kind of the sensation of motion. And I guess uh, volume three of Prison Pit kind of has a little of that. I mean, I found it interesting. I found it really interesting how Ryan is, aside from the introduction of the new character at the beginning, how even toward the end of the volume, he's uh, switching up his art style a little into a, a very Funny how this guy keeps coming back in this conversation, but a very Matt Brinkman-like kind of look to the end of it with all the the heavy like sharp lines and stuff. It's kind of uh, like that. And but yeah, I, I enjoyed the volume. I think you know it reads very quickly. It's very uh, it's a very visceral thing. Um, like somebody, I think Tim said before. There's it's also part of a study of motion, but more than that, it's it's Ryan's study of mutation and all the, the things a body can go through, all the fluids it can expel and then just take new shapes. And all of this is used as a mechanism for more and more fights. It's like this whole biological world and just the world itself wants fighting because it's the prison pit. Uh, and that's the disposition of the work, I think. And it can read, you know, difficultly uh when you just have one volume in the middle of it i think that might be a symptom actually of using a manga-ish pacing without the frankly financial uh structures in place for manga serialization where you get another little shot of prison pit every so often but i think it's a really good series i definitely enjoyed volume three
1: yeah, I think it was a. When he first did this, the first person fit was kind of a revelation that he could change things up so much and make it work. It's completely different from what he'd done before. And, um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, I guess what I was going to say is uh, following up on that, the way it does motion and mutation and, it's just, uh, and how it links in with some of these other car- comics that we've been talking about is just, I think one of the pleasures of cartooning for uh, historically has been to seeing a cartoonist uh, just. Do their imagine, just like explore their ima- imagine things, draw things, and, it doesn't have, and it just all the different ramifications and possibilities from that. See that in Yokoyama, like that's what almost every single thing in it is. We see that with uh Rube Goldberg, like I mentioned before. Um, you see this with Johnny Ryan, where it's, the, the, it's not even so much the story as just the pleasure of seeing what someone can imagine and draw. Um, and uh, it's It's interesting how big a part of the pleasure for comics that is to me. Um, It's it's very, in some ways, very formal and surface level. Um, Although I think there's more going on um, sometimes with Prison Pit than that. Although, um, at least that's how I felt when I read Prison Pit 1. I can't remember what it is, unfortunately. I shouldn't have brought it up. I I regret it already. But when I first read Prison Pit 1, I had a very um, complicated theory about the deep philosophical meaning of it. Um, I did not get that from Prison Pit Number Three, but um, maybe I will when I when when the story concludes.
4: Well,
2: sure. It's almost like how the the plot in something like Berserk, which I know is uh Ryan is a big admirer of it. Um, uh-huh. It doesn't, and I know Tim's read it too, and it doesn't. Uh, Resolve very quickly. There's there's an awful lot of volumes in there where seemingly nothing happens except activity. But but that's okay. Eventually it gets around to it because comics like that, action comics in that idiom, has you know that could be the pleasure of it.
3: Mm Hmm. Yeah, my objection to the slow pace is purely financial. I love reading. (laughs) You know, if if, you know if I could if I could have that comic for free. Well, and also not like waiting that long. And then being able to flip through the book in twenty minutes, you know, but um, but yeah, I love that he that there's just volume after volume of fighting. I mean, it, it, yeah, that's what I want to see uh, Johnny Ryan draw, and I think um, you guys are right that it is a study of of mutation and sort of the the human body, but it's also I think um, if you look at Prison Pit and look at Johnny Ryan's gag strips, which are you know the most horrible, macabre, bloody. Um, yeah not yeah. mention other fluids uh gag strips ever, and how much sharper and better they've gotten since he started doing prison pit, I think they've really improved, and I think it's because he's also taking it as an opportunity to to examine you know he'll draw you know he'll he'll do comics where it's like a dude's face getting ripped off by a chainsaw or something, and it's like in prison pit he's able to he used to just present that image. You know, and it would be in sequential form, but there wouldn't necessarily be a lead up to and then a come down from that image. You know, yeah, right, yeah. The panels around it would be totally different things going on. And in prison pit, he's very much doing like tracking of motion. Um, he slows it down to a really slow pace in his action sequences and it's like he's examining, okay, how do these, you know, horrible pinnacle images actually happen? How do I get a dude with like you know things stuck through his body and his skin getting pulled off like how do I get there and what are the you know the grace notes of these these huge powerful climactic notes and, yeah, and but, how much value can I pull from those
1: it, I think I agree with that when, like, when he started Prison Pit he, like, he reached a new level I had, I had thought I had started to get a little it started to seem a little tired after a while as much as a big a fan as I was of Johnny Ryan um it seemed like he was starting to tread water a bit, but he's been rejuvenated. Well,
2: I, I, I disagree. I thought Angry Youth just kept getting crazier and crazier and just well, topping himself more and more.
1: Well that number twelve, I think it was number twelve, that one that you might be right. And I think it might happen right a little bit before Prison Pit. But um but some of the like the no sketchbook comics, maybe that doesn't maybe it's not fair to even judge them. But um I I, I didn't think I felt like his success rate was dropping. But the The main point is, that I just think he's like, right now he's just going like, going crazy. I thought the Kramer story was really good, um, and uh, and, and it felt like I I can't really say why, but it feels like he's dealing with um, it feels like it's going deeper than it used to. I guess is what I would be saying, and maybe that fits what you were saying before, Matt, about how um, before he would show something gross, but you wouldn't see what led up to it and what came after it. It's starting to feel more like there's some weight to things. I think we can yeah, all like a real
3: Examination.
0: Uh, and and thus concludes our list. Um, that was almost two hours, gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Oh, I think we already lost Matt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Matt's gone. Uh, thank you, Matt. That was excellent. And thank you, Joe. And thank you, Timothy. I really appreciate you guys taking the time. I realize it's very late for you where you are on the east coast um and we'll have to do this again thank you Uh, thanks robin